Amen, and welcome everyone to worship. Wow, what a journey he went on through the seasons of his life. He got a good start. Uh, He lived through the middle years well, accomplished a lot, was noble in many of his endeavors. But something happened. Toward the end of his life, he began to drift. And what's doubly troubling about this is that this man, Solomon, that we've been studying for a few weeks now, had so much wisdom, so much knowledge early on. And people have asked through these weeks, how could someone like that make such bad decisions? And it's a good question. But don't we all? Do any of us really live up to the knowledge we have? Does anyone actually obey everything that we know to do? So we all live far beneath our knowledge of God. None of us lives up to everything we know. But Solomon, as he went on this journey, looking for meaning in life without God in the equation, came to some sad conclusions. He discovered that it was all meaningless. He said, what's the point? If there's no God, you live, you die, but to what purpose? We're just like the animals. And then last week, we saw that he turned a corner in this expose. He, as we saw in chapter 12, talked about remembering your creator. Because as your creator, he knows you better than anyone. As your uh, creator, He deserves that, that you would not just give him a a nod as the big guy in the sky, but bring him into the core of your life. Remember your creator before you complicate life with poor decisions, before your body begins to fail with aging, and by all means, remember him before you die. But as we wrap this series up today, I want us to look at the conclusion of the whole matter. It's found in the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. And I want us to talk about this for a few minutes. He concludes, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, my hunch is that every person, sooner or later, thinks about meaning in life. I've never personally gone to a funeral without asking myself, is there really life beyond the grave? Is there really meaning in this life? And of course, as a Christ follower, I have answered that. I've concluded that, yes, there is indeed. And God has told us so much about that. But as you look out at night on a clear evening and you see all these stars, do you ever ask yourself these cosmic questions like, where did I come from? Where am I going? What is my life about? Am I just some cosmic accident or is there really any meaning in life? Solomon was an extremely educated man, but he found that Just knowledge alone didn't give him what he really needed. He needed a revelation from God. 
Last week, we talked about the design of God in creation and that so many very intelligent people look at the design in creation and go, if there's this kind of function and this kind of design, there has to be a designer. So many have made that conclusion. But let's be honest, you can study creation for 10 hours a day for the rest of your life and you will not, by creation alone, come to this conclusion. Just by studying creation alone, you will not conclude, you know what? Man is a sinner. We are all sinners and we've fallen short of God's glory and we've been separated from God by our sin. But God addressed that in his son, Jesus Christ, when he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He came to die for the sins of humanity and to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. He rose again from the grave, and now if we place our faith in him, we can be forgiven of our sins, and we can know eternal life, and he will change us from the inside out. You can study creation till you're blue, and you'll never come to those conclusions by creation alone. That kind of information has to be revealed to us through some other means. It has to be revealed to us by God himself. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in the book we call 1 Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased, catch this part, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You say, pastor, that's a bit wordy. What does that mean? That means that by studying creation alone or just by following worldly wisdom, just by listening to humanistic philosophers, you can't come to the understanding of who God really is. God has to reveal himself. And that's one of the reasons that Solomon found his endeavor so empty as he tried to look for meaning without God in the equation. He found that education alone was not the answer. Have you ever known someone who put all of their chips in education? Who put all of their trust in just trying to gain knowledge? Maybe they got their college degree and then they went on to a master's and then they worked hard and got a PhD. I've known a lot of people who've gone through that journey And some of them are fine members of this church and outstanding Christians. But I've known a number of people who ended up very empty inside because without God in the equation, education is not enough. In fact, many find that those diplomas, those degrees don't even ensure you a good job today, right? Perhaps you heard about the unemployed man who applied for a job as the janitor at the First Baptist Church of Homer, New York. Some of you have been to Homer? And the pastor talked to him and said, would you fill out these employment forms here? And the man said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I I can't read or write. And the pastor was very empathetic and very kind, but he thought, you know, I'm not sure I want to hire someone in this role who is completely illiterate. And so he was very kind to the man. He prayed with him and sent him out with a bag of apples. 
Well, the man stood on the street corner, ate a couple of the apples, and then he decided that he would sell the others, and so he did. And with the profit he made, he bought the next day more apples and stood on the street corner and sold those. And he did this day after day after day until finally he had a very profitable fruit stand. And then he parlayed that into a burgeoning grocery business. And years later, he came into the bank and had a bag of money, millions, $3 million he wanted to deposit. The banker was delighted. He said, would you fill out these forms? He said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't read or write. The banker was astonished. He said, this is amazing. You made all that money in that business and you can't read or write, sir. Do you know where you would be if you had an education? He said, yeah, I'd be the janitor of the First Baptist Church. More knowledge is not the key. Solomon even concluded here that with much knowledge, there's much pain. He said, much study wearies the body. So what an amazing conclusion he comes to. Fear God and keep his command. This is the whole duty of humanity. By the way, you want to make a guess? Who talks about the fear of God more than anyone in the whole Bible? Solomon, Solomon. Listen to a few of these phrases that he wrote in the book of Proverbs. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. To fear God is to hate evil. To fear God adds length to life. Boy, those are things that people are clamoring for today, isn't it? And Solomon says, the fear of God is the place that all of that starts. He goes on, the fear of God leads to life. The fear of the Lord brings wealth and honor and life. So the obvious question is, what in the world does he mean by the fear of God? I'll bet I've got people listening to me today who believe those two words, fear and God, don't belong in the same sentence together. There's something wrong. There's something downright inappropriate to even talk about fearing God. And maybe you have had all kinds of bad experiences where you were scared in church or some church leader tried to, quote, put the fear of God in you. And so that's a turnoff, perhaps, in your experience. But you gotta admit, fear is a common reality in our culture. When Ann Landers was at the height of her popularity, she had 10,000 people a week from all over the world writing in letters to her asking questions about life, from everything to, from parenting to marriage to relationships to work-related issues to money. It was incredible. And once Ann Landers was asked, what is the most common problem represented in your letters? She said, without doubt, it is fear. Fear is the number one issue people are grappling with. I wonder what you are fearful of today. I'm going to do a little game. I'm going to do a little survey with you. And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you struggle with any of these fears. Now, some fears are very serious. Some are almost silly. Some are superstitious. We've got all these different fears. But I'm going to read some phobias here. And I want you to just raise your hand up if you maybe sometimes struggle or deal with this phobia, okay? The first one is acrophobia. That's easy. How many of you, I, I'm afraid of heights. 
How many of you are afraid of heights? Okay, that's a lot of people. Thank you. Thanks. Don't be, don't be shy. Oh, right, how about this one? I'll bet there's a lot of people who have this phobia, fear of spiders, arachnophobia. Wow, a lot of people. Yeah, you just don't like those creepy things, do you? Yeah. How about this one? Aerophobia, fear of flying. You just don't like to get on planes. You, maybe you do it, but yeah, thank you. Thank you. How about this one? Trypanophobia. Some of you suffer from that but don't know it. Fear of needles. How many of you have that? Thank you. Thank you. That's a lot of folks. Dental phobia. You just really don't like dentists. You don't like to go to the dentist. That's, thank you. Here's one. Pentherophobia. Fear of mother-in-laws. How many of you thank? Yes. I see that hand. Is there another? Yes. Fear of mother-in-laws. That's quite a few. Or one more, phylacrophobia, the fear of a receding hairline. How many of you, yeah, I see, thank you. And judging by this little game we just played, I think some of you have the fear of raising your hand in public. You're going, I'm not gonna raise my hand no matter what he says. We have all these fears that we deal with on a daily basis, some serious, some superstitious, some silly. Maybe you're afraid of losing your job or your marriage. Maybe you're afraid that you'll never have anyone to kind of wake up next to in the morning. Maybe you're afraid of where our culture or our country is going or what's happening in the political realm. Maybe you're afraid of financial disaster. Many of these fears and many more grip the lives of people every day. Well, I'm gonna suggest two things today that are involved in what Solomon calls the fear of God, because that's what he concludes. Fear God. There must be something to it. Properly understood, what is involved in this appropriate fear of God? Well, I'm gonna suggest two things and then break them down. First of all, to fear God means to relate to him properly. Now, I've noticed that there are three primary ways that people tend to relate to God. Trust me, these are not exhaustive. There are probably many more ways that people relate to God, but in my experience and observation, I see three primary ways that people relate to God. Some neither fear nor love God. You know someone like that? They kind of have this rebellious spirit. It's kind of in-your-face God. The Bible describes people like that. Romans 3, verse 20 says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Jeremiah 6, the prophet Jeremiah, says that they've forgotten how to blush. Simply put, they don't fear God, and their life reflects that. Their life shows it. There are people all around who would be in this category. They neither fear nor love God. Just about Every movie that comes out depicts someone who would fit nicely in that category. There's probably people in your neighborhood, people, members of your family, who neither fear God nor love God. And sometimes it may be this raucous, rebellious spirit that's obvious. Other times it may be very quiet and subtle, but they neither fear nor love God. But you know what? The Bible teaches that there is a legitimate fear of God. The writer of Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or take Jesus. 
He said, Jesus, Jesus said, don't fear those who can destroy the body, rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So here's what I would say. If you're a person or if you know a person who just lives without any sense of fear, this awe or awesome respect for God, it's not bravery. It's cluelessness. If your fear mechanism doesn't kick in at certain times, with all due respect, there's something wrong. If you can lean out without any support over the chasm of the Grand Canyon and your heart doesn't beat just a little bit faster, something's wrong. Something's wrong. If you're facing a mother grizzly bear, 1,200 pounds, and her, one of her cubs has been injured, and you're right there in her way, and you don't get sweaty palms, trust me, something's wrong with you. Really, there's a problem. And again, I say it with all the kindness and with all the due respect I can. If you go through this life and you act as though there is no God and no real possibility of being separated from that God one day for eternity, I'm very, very concerned about you. And I mean that with utter sincerity. Some people don't fear God and they don't love God either. But here's another category that I believe is possibly more common than that one. Some people fear God, but they do not love him. You ever known anyone like that? I'll bet we have some people here today or people listening online who would honestly fit kind of into this category. They fear God, but they do not love him. You recognize God's authority. You honestly believe what the Bible teaches, that one day we will stand before God and be evaluated, be judged for our life. And because of this, you actually show some obedience to God in your life. And you do religious activities. Maybe you go to church, but you don't do it because of this overwhelming love for God. You do it out of a sense of duty. When you boil it all down, it's honestly a sense of fear. You're afraid that if you don't do it, bad things are going to happen. There's going to be these consequences. So you come to church, you go through the motions, you, you do some religious things because you fear what will happen if you don't. Now think about that. Fear even drives your faith. Years ago when I was in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, I was a pizza delivery guy. I tell you, you really get to know a city well when you deliver pizza. Just come back, get two or three more pizzas, take them out, hit the road again. You're driving all over the place. Still to this day, when I see men and women out there delivering pizza, I wanna go up and slap them a high five and say, way to go. There's this bond, all right? I did that for a long, long time to try to earn money to get through school. And one day, I got a speeding ticket while I was delivering pizza. I should have gotten many, to be honest with you, for full disclosure here, but I'm telling you the true story that one day I did get a ticket. It's the only ticket that I ever got while delivering pizza. There was a stretch of road, and it was straight for like a third of a mile, and you could see all the way. Have you ever seen a road where the speed limit posted was just wrong? You know what I mean? You look at that, and you go, wow, 
that is way too low for this road. So I looked down that road, didn't see a car anywhere, nobody in sight, pedal to the metal. I'm doing 55 and a 30. Here comes the cop. I'm pulled over. I am so bummed, so frustrated. Now the pizza is going to be all cold. The people are going to be mad. I'm going to get a lousy tip. Plus, I'm going to have to pay for this ticket. I was so upset. Now, I want you to know what did not happen at that moment. The officer and I did not embrace. (laughs) We did not chit-chat about how the local sports teams were doing. I did not tell him I was glad to see him and all that. Uh, I just didn't enjoy that chat with local law enforcement. Now, don't get me wrong. I respect police officers. I'm glad they're out there keeping us safe, doing their job, and I not only respect them and appreciate them, but I want you to know I'm glad to call a number of them my friends who are a part of Grace Fellowship Church, wonderful men and women. But when I'm breaking the law, I don't want them around. You know what I'm saying? And that's the way some people react toward God. They recognize his authority. They see his power. They're glad he's out there policing the universe, but they just as soon not get too close to him. Some people fear God, but they don't love him. But there's a third category, and I hope this is you. Some have a healthy fear of God, and it's a both-and thing, and an intimate love for him. I believe that's the kind of fear that Solomon is talking about here. To fear God means to relate to him properly. Not just just fear, not just this awe-inspiring respect, not just knowing that he has power and authority, but also an intimate love for God because you know he knows the hairs on your head. You know that he's provided for your salvation. You know that his providence is active in your life you know that you love him because he first loved you. That's what it means to fear God. But there's more. There's more than just that. To fear God means to take his promises as well as his warnings. Now, catch the two parts of that. To take his promises as well as his warnings seriously. I notice some people want to take the promises seriously, but they ignore the warnings. Other people are more morbid almost macabre in their approach. They take the warning seriously, but they don't make much of the promises. We've got to take both. By the way, if you're a studious student of the Bible, do you know when the idea of fearing God first comes into play in the Bible? And not the first people that were afraid, because that would be Adam and Eve as they hid from God in the garden. But you know the first time the phrase fear God is ever used. It's very interesting. It's an Abraham story. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Abraham, who was called out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to a promised land. Abraham, who was promised by God to have this son, even though he and his wife Sarah were beyond the childbearing years. In fact, Scripture uses a humorous phrase. It says their bodies were as good as dead, all right? Sarah's way past menopause. Abraham is just ready for the grave. I mean, they're just done for. 
Nobody. In other words, this is humanly impossible. But God specializes in the impossible. And so he comes to Abraham and says, even in your old age, you're going to have this son. Sarah's going to give birth. Sarah laughed at the idea. But God was serious. And I'm sure Abraham probably expected it to happen in maybe nine months. But you know what? Every promise God makes doesn't come true right away. It was 25 years when they were even more decrepit that finally the promised son came along. What a joy Isaac must have been to Abraham and Sarah. And then the unthinkable happened. The one they'd waited for all these years, the son of promise, the one through whom all of God's promises that he was going to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, God said, I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to give him up. Unthinkable. But Moses was such a person of faith. He believed so much in the promises of God that scripture says early the next morning, he got up and they began to make the three-day journey to Mount Moriah. They left the servants at the bottom, and Abraham and young Isaac made the journey up. On the way up, Isaac said, Father, the fire is here. The wood is here. They were carrying this with them. But where's the lamb? Young Isaac knew that a lamb would be needed for sacrifice, and probably fighting back the tears, Abraham said, my son, God will provide a lamb. We don't know all the details. It's probably good that God spared us those. But we do know this. When Abraham was about to follow through with this, God spoke to him and said, don't lay a finger on the boy. And here's the words. Now I know that you fear God. First time that phrase is used in Scripture. What does it mean? When Abraham went up the hillside, he was struggling. We know it because it tells us in the book of Hebrews that he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Think of that. Abraham was believing in the promises of God, even though it looked like there's no way this can happen. His attitude was, obedience is my business. Making the promise come true is God's. So what did it mean for Abraham to fear God? He took God's promises seriously, even when it looked like there was no way it was going to work out. Now, what does this mean for you? So much. If you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, hear me today, there will be some seasons, get this, and some situations, seasons and situations in your life where you will be put to the test just like Abraham. Oh no, the request won't be the same. The test won't be the same, thank God. But you will be asked to give up something that means the world to you. And God will test your faith. How are you gonna respond when those moments come? Those testing moments are pivotal, pivotal because they reveal where our faith really lies and who we're really trusting in. Some of you are maybe in a season like that right now. May God give you the strength, as he did Abraham, to make the right choice. And finally, a person who fears God 
also not only takes his promises, but his warnings seriously. I want to read that last verse again, because this is an astounding verse. If you've just read the first 11 chapters, you would never think he was going to end this way, would you? But listen to this. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. He said, now, Pastor Rex, are you saying that we ought to fear God because one day we're going to be judged and we might be lost forever? Is that why we should fear God? Now, if you've ever listened, please listen closely right now. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, by that I mean, you have trusted in what he did for you at the cross to pay the penalty your sins and mine deserve. You've trusted in that as the full payment for your sins. You are continuing to trust that sacrifice today. You've given your life to him and you've been saved by his grace. Are you listening to me? You do not need to fear condemnation when you stand before God. You know why? Because that's already been taken care of. He, Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took the punishment for us. And when we're in him, we are at peace with God. No more condemnation. So you don't need to fear that when you stand before God. But, but, If you're not a Christian, please hear me today. If you have not accepted what Jesus did for you at the cross as the full and complete payment for your sins, if you're still running your own life, if you're still hijacked your own life, doing your own thing, if you're still saying to yourself, well, you know, it's really me. I'm gonna be my own savior. I've gotta be good enough to earn this. If you are still trusting in yourself, and I say this, oh, I say it so respectfully, And I trust so kindly, but you still have reason to fear punishment because you have not yet yielded your life to Christ. You've not yet trusted and embraced what he did for you. Instead, you're still trying to do it yourself. Jesus said in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. This is Jesus now, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him. He's talking obviously about God the Father. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Wow. That is such a sobering word from Jesus if you have not yet yielded your life to him as Savior and Lord. But once, once, let me say it again, once you accept Christ as Savior, do you see why we make such a big deal of this around here? Once you've embraced Christ, once you've yielded, once you've accepted what he did for you at the cross to save you, oh, you have no more reason to fear condemnation. We will still give an account before God We'll still give an account according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, we will be evaluated, awards will be granted. But the issue of you being saved or lost is already settled. I hope you understand that. Scripture puts it like this. 
2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God wants us to have this appropriate, submissive, awe-inspiring respect. That's what fear is for him. A reverent awe for who he is where we're no longer afraid of condemnation from God, but we're careful to live in such a way that our lives exhibit the respect which he so obviously deserves. He said, now, Pastor Rex, if I believed what you just said, and that if I just accepted what Jesus did for me on the cross, and hey, I'm scot-free, no more condemnation to me, for me, what would keep me from just living any way I pleased? Good question. Wow. If you really understand all he did for you and how dire your situation was, if you really understand his holiness and the immensity of his sacrifice for you, when that really dawns on you, you will never want to live irresponsibly and blow smoke in God's face. You'll live the rest of your life as a P.S. saying, thank you, Lord, for what you did for me. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. So the fear of God means to both have this awe-inspiring reverence and respect for him, but it also means to love him intimately. And the fear of God means to take seriously both his promises and his warnings because both of them are so real. But I want to close today with this little story from the great Oxford scholar, C.S. Lewis. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he has this little scene where I think this important balance is shown. He tells of one of the children, a little girl named Lucy, who asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, this is a children's book now, asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure, the Aslan is the lion who represents God in the story. And little Lucy asked, is he safe? I myself feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie. Make no mistake about it. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan, the lion, without their knees knocking, well, they're either braver than most or they're just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, Lucy asked. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. And God's goodness and his perfect love allows us to come before him without fear of punishment. Why? Because through Christ, we have been reconciled to God. So what about you? We've seen the end of Solomon's story, but I'm concerned about the end of your story. What have you concluded after your journey through life up to this point? Some listening are very young, others maybe in the middle, some getting rather older. Have you come to the conclusion of the matter that there is a God and one day we will all stand before him? So fear God and love him, and take his promises and 
and his warnings very seriously. Father, thank you for the journey that we've been on with Solomon. What a story. Full of twists and turns. But I, for one, am grateful for the conclusion because it reminds me of your amazing grace that no matter how many wrong roads we've gone down, no matter how many wandering and wasted years there have been, as long as you're drawing, there's always hope. As long as you're drawing us, we can always cry out to you for mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord. And I ask today, I ask today that you would make us into the kind of people, every one of us, who would have that appropriate fear and love for God and it would show up in a wonderful, responsible life where we live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.